As we mentioned, we are very grateful and excited to have the Hunter family back with us. Hard to believe it's been as long as it's been since they were last here, but we wanted to start with a quick update video to give you guys a sense of what's been happening over the last little bit, and then uh, Brother Herb is going to come and uh, preach God's word to us. Our story begins four years ago in Nizna, South Africa. Nizna is a coastal town located in the heart of South Africa's Garden Route region. It is named the Garden Route because it remains green throughout the year due to the temperate climate and the year-round rainfall. This story involves us, the Hunter family. On October 4th, 2017, we, that is all six of us, arrived in South Africa. We came to South Africa with a plan that focused on three areas of ministry, planting churches, teaching, training, and practicing biblical counseling, and theological education. First, let me tell you that God has worked. Let's begin with the church planning efforts. We came in October 2017, and in January of 2018, we began a Thursday evening Bible study in our home in the community of Belvedere. At first, other missionaries attended. Then slowly but surely, different South Africans began to join us. And little by little, God grew that Thursday evening Bible study. And then, in late 2018, after about a year of meeting on Thursday nights, we began to talk about the idea of having Sunday meetings. We wanted to take it slow. We didn't want to rush. Things that are rushed seldom last and we wanted to be sure that God was in it. But when we talked about our plans with those who came to Bible study, they were all excited to begin and to begin meeting every week. So on January 13th, 2019, we officially launched our church information with our first ever Sunday morning service. We met in those early days at the Belvedere Manor, a lovely hotel and conference center right in the heart of our community. Over the following couple of years, we witnessed the blessing of God through relationships, hospitality, evangelism, and even through the biblical counseling ministry, we have seen numerous families added to our church information, so much so that on March 18, 2021, we officially signed our church charter and organized as Nice in the West Bible Church. Currently, we are meeting in our house since the Belvedere Manor no longer wanted to rent to us, so we are now looking for a piece of property to purchase and build a church on or perhaps a suitable facility that could do a long-term lease and rental. But properties in our town are expensive. We are searching in earnest for the right place to meet. And our church is growing. We see visitors often, and many Sundays we have to seat people outside of our living room. In our next term of missionary service, we have some goals for our church plan. We hope to continue to move the church towards self-supporting status, we have identified a young man from our church who's gifted for ministry and theologically trained, and we have given him opportunities to preach and to continue to disciple him through that. We are looking to elect deacons and to begin the process of formalizing the different elements that make up a New Testament church. Some of the folks who have come to our church have come to us through our biblical counseling ministry. This is the second area of God's working. We launched the ministry of Crosswalk Biblical Counseling shortly after we arrived, and many, many people have come through that office based on referrals or even visiting the Nisna Hope website. The counseling ministry is housed in the Nisna Hope Ministry Building on 6 Queen Street in Nisna Central. A 
couple of counselees have agreed to share with you how God has worked in their lives. Since we've started here, it's been, you know, it's been so good, I must say. Uh, yeah, it's been good. It's been very good. We've learned a lot because we, the main thing that we've been struggling with is anger. And um, so we've been going through scriptures um, that teaches us uh, not to choose anger because we, we, we didn't know that we, you know, to, you choose to get angry. We didn't know. We thought it's like, it's, I don't know, like it's like a devil or a demon that we had. <laughs> so we learned that uh, you choose to be angry and you can choose, you know, to respond to situations the godly way, you know, the way that um, glorifies God. When I started to go to church, I think I get I I'm like that lady in the Bible who was sitting in the Jordan River, who was having lot of heavy blood. But when since she wore the garment of God, her problem was gone. Since I meet the pastor here, I never worry. That's why I call this baby blessing. Now she is here. Really, this baby changed my life. I don't know if I was gonna take it out, what was gonna be happening in my life. I really, Pastor Ebu, he saved my life. I thank God for the man of God. These are the stories of God's grace and mercy as we have reached into the lives of people and by His grace have seen Him do a mighty work. As far as future plans for the counseling ministry is concerned, we certainly want to expand the reach of the Counseling Center to more and more people. And furthermore, we hope to train more counselors through the local churches. Speaking of counseling training, this brings me to the third element of our life in South Africa. Our ministry has also included theological education and training. We helped our ministry colleagues to form the Biblical Leadership Institute. The Institute, or BLI as we affectionately call it, offers 15 courses over a cycle of three years in order to provide students with a comprehensive overview of pastoral ministry and theology. It has been my responsibility to teach the biblical counseling component of our courses. I teach Introduction to Biblical Counseling, Marriage and Family Counseling, and Counseling the Hard Cases. Classes usually meet four Saturdays over a two-month span for four hours each time. The Ministry of Biblical Leadership Institute has expanded but there are lots of other things we do. I serve with a local Rotary Club, which gets me into the community, meeting people and making connections. Janet volunteers in three different primary schools in town, helping kids to learn, to read, and teaching missionary stories. We have extraordinary freedom in the schools here in South Africa. Janet leads a bi-weekly ladies Bible study, and on Tuesday nights, Herb teaches the Bible to a small group in Greenendahl, about 20 minutes away from where we live. We also lead youth events, and every Friday afternoon, Herb travels to Bangani to host a Bible study for boys from the local high school. We are busy serving the Lord in South Africa and can't wait to see how God will bless us on the field during our next term of service. We thank you for your continued prayer and support and the ongoing financial gifts to our ministry. We are so grateful to God for you.
No problem at all. Well, that's great. Thanks for being here. Good to see you all again. And uh, thanks for praying for us and for faithfully giving to our ministry in South Africa. We are grateful to God for your participation in our ministry and wanted to just share a little bit about what God has been doing on the, on the mission field. Um, you saw the video of the young lady that had uh, the baby on her lap, baby blessing. That's very common in South Africa for people to name their kids words rather than finding a name like Bob or Sue or Jim or something like that. Uh, sometimes it's, it's fairly common to see people use names that are just words. So we've met blessing and precious and gift. Actually, gift was a man, so I guess he's God's gift to women. But uh, you know how that works, right? Um, so we've had all kinds of interesting names. But Baby Blessing uh, was scheduled to be aborted. When Michelle came to our ministry center looking for counsel, she was concerned. I think her conscience was bothering her because she intended to abort her baby. And so she came, she, I never forget it, we sat in the counseling room there and she said, Pastor, would it be a sin to kill somebody? And at first I didn't know who she wanted to kill, so I asked a couple of questions. Uh, domestic violence is a real problem in South Africa, and I thought maybe she wanted to kill her husband because he was beating her, that would not be uncommon. And so um, I asked a few questions and then she revealed that, no, she was scheduled to have an abortion the next day. And so we talked to her, shared scripture with her, assured her that God would not be pleased if she killed her baby. And so uh, through much prayer and uh, work in the scriptures, we convinced Michelle that she should keep her baby and that we would do what we could to help. And so she called that baby Blessing. I'll never forget that Janet organized a baby shower for Michelle uh, just before Blessing was born. And she was so excited. You have to understand, Michelle's from Zimbabwe, and she might be in South Africa legally. She might be there illegally, too. And um, she really has nothing. She works for a few dollars a day and lives in a wooden shack uh, up in the township. And so we assured her that we would help her if we could. And so she came to this um, baby shower, and she said, I never thought in all my life that I could be somebody who would have a baby shower. So I thought, really? It's just a baby shower. Like, it's kind of boring if you ask me, but I'm a man. What do I know? So she was so, so excited. She said she didn't sleep the entire night before a baby shower. Um, and the ladies from our church have taken such great care of her and of blessings. So that's just one little story of how God has used us in South Africa. And you've been part of that work, and I thank you so much, Um for that, outside my sending church, this is the second largest church by donation amount uh, that we have in Canada. So we're grateful for you and appreciate your work. It's a very necessary thing that you're doing for us, and we're grateful. And I hear from some of you from time to time, so I know you're praying for us and keeping up on our ministry. Let me invite you to stop by the table. It's in the school entryway there where people are coming in. Pick up one of these prayer cards. You'll need to update your card. The first card, our rookie card, only has four kids on it, and now we're down to one. So our kids are leaving home, and so we wanted to update this for you. Our contact information is on the back, so please pick one of these up. We brought lots of them. We'll leave some here at the church as well, but you can stop by our table and pick that up when the service is over. And then if you would also sign up for our prayer letter, 
We send that by email, so if you have an email address, just write your name and your email address down, and we'll make sure you get that letter. It sends out about once every two months uh, to your inbox, and you can read about what God is doing through us on the mission field that way. Maybe you've signed up for our letter in the past, and you don't seem to be getting it. Let me encourage you to check the junk folder in your inbox um, email because many times my letter goes there. I don't know why, but sometimes that's what happens. So you must check there for it as well. And then finally, before we turn our attention to the Word, let me invite uh, all the kids that are here. If you have a child here, I don't see too many kids in this service, but if you have a child who is between ages of 4 and 10, stop by our table and Janet has a small gift for you. We've brought some things from South Africa to give away to kids, so you're welcome to stop by and check that out after we're finished here this morning. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5 probably seems like a strange text for a missionary to preach from, but your pastor is a strange man. So we turn to Leviticus. <laughs> I don't think he's in here. Good. Um, Leviticus chapter 5, and I think there's a connection here to missions, and you can see what you think when we're finished with this text this morning. Let us read. If you have your scriptures there, you can follow along. I'd like to read Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14, all the way down to chapter 6, verse 7, just to set the context for my comments this morning. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent, for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by a oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt and he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering and the priest shall make atonement for him before the lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. I'd like to consider these verses today just in the little time that we have. I want to talk about the guilt, the guilt offering. That's what we're looking at this morning. In the last 20 years, the voices that are demanding reparations have grown somewhat louder, it seems to me. 
in the U.S., African Americans who are descended from slaves that came from Africa, they're demanding reparations be paid to them because their ancestors were enslaved and enriched companies or schools or individuals because of their slavery, because of that oppression. And so they're demanding some repair. That's what a reparation is. It's a means of repairing the relationship. And so they're demanding reparation payments be made because of, by those who enslaved their descendants. Now, closer to home, You've probably heard the word reparation used as it relates to suffering that indigenous population of Canada suffered in the residential school system. It's been in the news a lot lately. And the argument is that because indigenous people were put into these residential schools and mistreated there, that somehow they deserve reparation payments because of the suffering that they endured. Now, my point is not to do a deep dive into politics this morning. That would not be profitable for any of us. But I just bring it up to make this point, that even in our modern day, people understand the idea of reparations. They seek reparations, they demand reparations, and sometimes reparations are made. And the guilt offering is, in a sense, a, a reparation. It's a means of repairing fellowship that had been broken between God and his people. You see, God had promised to bless his people, but the blessing was conditioned upon obedience. If the people would obey, then they could dwell in the land. If people would obey, then they could eat the fruit of the land. So it was conditioned on obedience. You obey, you will be blessed. But when they disobeyed, they lost the blessing and the fellowship and enjoyment of God's presence, being his people, was broken. You remember the story of Achan, right? In Joshua chapter 6, everything in the city of Jericho was placed under what we call the ban. And God said, all the spoils of war that are taken from the city of Jericho are to be placed into the temple treasury, into the tabernacle treasury. Those vessels, those, all the china that they got and the golden cups and things that people had collected in Jericho, they were all to be taken and used in the service of the Lord. No one was to get any reward for the defeat of Jericho. It's kind of like an offering of the first fruits, which you will come to as you study through Leviticus. Well, Achan saw something that he liked. It was a change of garments. It was some gold, silver, whatever. He took it, put it in his tent, assuming that maybe no one would see him. Now, what Achan did was he sinned with a high hand. He saw something. He coveted it. He took it. He buried it. He intended to sin. We call it sinning with a high hand. And no reparation was made for his guilt, was it? The next time the Israelites went out to fight a battle, they fought against Ai, and what happened? They were defeated. And Joshua was all perplexed. God, I thought you were going to give us the land. And God said to Joshua, well, there's sin in the camp. Somebody has sinned in the holy things of the Lord. That's what's in view in verse 2. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord, uh, I'm sorry, it's not, I'm, I was reading 6-2. 5.15 says, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord. So that's what we're talking about, the holy things of the Lord. And Achan took those things, and so God punishes Israel because the fellowship they would enjoy was broken. So once 
the sin was found out and dealt with, and Achan was put to death for his sin, then God's anger was assuaged and removed, and the blessing of God continued to flow again. So that's how the system worked. If you did an intentional sin, but what if you sinned unintentionally? That is, you, did, you sinned, yes, but you didn't mean to. Well, the scripture speaks to that, and that's where this guilt offering comes in. In Leviticus 5:14 to 6:7, we learn about offerings made for unintentional sin. There's a number of circumstances outlined here in which this particular offering would need to be made. The first of these offerings was a reparation offering for sinning against God's property. That's the first one. That's what's covered in 5:14 down to the end of 5:19. And this sin really covers, this offering rather, really covers two sinful aspects. There's two sins mentioned. Verses 14 to 16 are unintentional sins. So you could offer a guilt offering for unintentional sins. You may have been going through your normal worship experience, let's say. You're at the tabernacle, and there are all kinds of rules in the tabernacle about what you could do. Don't touch this, don't move that, light this fire here, eat this thing here. You have to, it's very, very specific, all right? There's all kinds of rules about what you could and couldn't do. It's kind of like COVID, you know? Don't do this, put that mask on, sanitize this, wash that, sing happy birthday while you, I've never sang happy birthday so much in my life. Wash your hands, you know, N95 mask, double mask, you know? It's like, look, I gotta tell you, coming to PEI was like reading Leviticus. There were so many rules about coming to PEI. I did a rapid test before I got here, just to make sure when I got here, I wasn't going to fail the rapid test. And so we park outside the booth, and it's going to take so long to get into PEI, you've got to turn your car off. So I turned my car off. And the guy comes out, and he says, did you, did you read all the regulations? You know what you're supposed to do? I said, yeah. <laughs> I might have missed one. There's a lot of them, all right? And he said, okay, well, so long as you read it. And I felt like asking him, do you know what all the regulations are? Because I bet you he doesn't. Anyway, he swabbed my nose and poked around and took my numbers down and everything else. And finally, we, we left. I wish there was a little Tim Hortons there at the stop. We could have. You know, all those regulations and all those rules, you know what they do? They increase the likelihood that you're going to sin. Really? I mean, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, it says the law came in to increase the trespass. The more rules you make about COVID, the more likely it is you're going to break one. Well, in the Old Testament, all these rules about coming into the tabernacle and wiping this and don't touch that and do this and do that, all it did was serve to prove what a deep sinner you really are. Because chances are, you're probably not going to get through this whole worship experience without doing something that is sinful. That's the point of the law. It's to demonstrate how sinful you actually are. So if you came to worship, you were going along doing your thing, and all of a sudden, whoops, ah, I touched that. Or maybe you took a Nazarite vow, and you were going to stay holy to the Lord, and that was your promise to the Lord, and you accidentally touched the carcass of a dead animal, or you accidentally, do you see what would happen? You didn't mean to do it. You weren't trying to sin, but you sinned, and now you're guilty. What are you going to do about that unintentional sin? Well, according to Leviticus chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, you would bring a ram to the priest. It would be based on the standard weight and measure of the 
tabernacle, you would bring that and you would add a 20% surcharge to it. So you didn't just come with the offering, you added 20% to make restitution. You you wanted to repair the fellowship that you had broken with God because of your sin. It's kind of like Zacchaeus. You remember him? The wee little man? Does anybody sing that anymore? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Well, when Zacchaeus was found by Christ and trusted Christ and realized, wait a second, I've been a thief and a robber, doesn't he restore? He doesn't just restore, does he? He gives fourfold. That's like an 80% surcharge on top of what he used. 180%. That was the repayment plan that Zacchaeus had. But here, the necessary repayment was 120%. This sum would have been used probably to fund the ongoing ministry of the priesthood and the maintenance of the tabernacle and temple and the ongoing ministry of the worship of the Lord. Well, there's another section of sins mentioned in verses 17 to 19, and this is reparations for possible sin. So in verses 14 to 16, it's sin you didn't mean to do, but you know you did. Okay? That's what we're looking at. And now we want to see what happens if I unintentionally sin, but I don't know it. What would happen if you got home after the day of worship at the tabernacle, and you were going about your business and you thought, back, you're thinking your way back through what happened and you realize, oh man, I think I might have touched that thing I wasn't supposed to touch. Or I think I might have, what am I going to do now? And your conscience condemned you and you felt guilty and realized, yes, I'm going to have to bear my iniquity. That's what verse 17 says, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. What's he going to do? Like Job, who offered sacrifices for his children just in case they sinned? Well, this is like that. What if in my conscience I'm all of a sudden smitten with, oh, you know what, I think I might have sinned. Well, you brought an offering for that. You really were guilty. And so you brought an offering and atonement was made, interestingly enough. You didn't have to pay the 20% surcharge. You just brought the offering to the Lord and God's anger was removed. Your sins were atoned for. So this is what happens when, chapter 5, verse 14 to verse 19, this is what happens when you sin unintentionally and you know about it or you don't know about it as it relates to the holy things of the Lord. But there's a second category that starts in chapter 6, and the second category is this. How do I make reparation if I sin against God by violating a neighbor's property? Because it was possible for people to violate their neighbor's property. It was still sin against God. Remember David in the Psalms after his sin against Bathsheba? He says, against you and you only have I sinned when he speaks to the Lord. All sin is against God. If you sin against a person that God has made, it's not just like, well, it's only between me and them. No, it's between you, them, and God. Because they are made in the image of God and you have sinned against them. So... In chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, we deal with making reparations for sinning against God by violating a neighbor's property. And so, here's what it says. First of all, it gives us a list of the particular sins that were in view in verse 2. If anyone sins, I'm in chapter 6 of Leviticus. I don't know where I've left you, but this is where I am. I'm in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 2. 
2. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of these things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. So here there were four particular categories of sins, most of them related to financial gain, that, a, that this offering would deal with. Some people say there's only three sins. I think we can see four here. First of all, you could sin against God by deceiving your neighbor in a matter of deposit or security. Maybe you made a loan to your neighbor and they began to pay you back. They owed you 10 payments and you said to them, hey, that was payment number nine. And they said, no, I'm sure it's payment number 10. No, no, it's, it's not number 10. You still owe me one more payment. Or maybe they gave you a down payment for something that they were going to purchase from you and you held that in security. And then when they came back to get the thing, you said, well, you didn't pay me the security money. Well, yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, it. What do we do about that? What happens when we sin against God by defrauding our neighbor that way? What about robbery? We just take something from our neighbor that doesn't belong to us or through oppression. Maybe there's some sort of way or means in which I bully my neighbor into giving me something. You better give me that thing or I'm going to tear your fence down. I guess maybe it wouldn't have been a fence. It would have been a tent. You don't give that to me. I'm taking your tent pegs out tonight while you're sleeping and your tent's going to fall in on you. Or I'm going to walk by your tent and hit the side of it so it rains inside your tent. I don't know. If it's kind of the ancient Israel practical jokes, I guess. But maybe you oppressed your neighbor somehow to get something out of them that you wanted for yourself. Maybe you lied about something that was lost and found. Man, I lost my cell phone. Where is it? I don't know. Meanwhile, it's vibrating in your pocket because people are texting you. So I don't know. Finders, keepers, you know, that kind of thing. All these sins are directed at your neighbor, but the challenge is that in some of those cases, God's name was often invoked as an oath. That's where pe people were swearing falsely. They were saying, as God is my witness, I didn't do that thing. As God is my witness, you do owe me another payment. As God is my witness, you see, they were invoking God's name as a cover for their deception. And so when this was found out, an offering had to be made because of these falsely sworn things that people were saying. So there were particular sins in view. Then the reparation, secondly, was made to the person, or I'm on letter B, I guess, in your outline. The reparation first was paid to the person. If you fell under conviction, you confessed what you'd done, you admitted your guilt, then you had to repay at a rate of 120%. You paid back the person that you wronged. You gave them whatever you took from them, and then you added 20% on top of it. So you repaid to the person, and you did it right away. Incidentally, I love this. This is at the end of verse 5. He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. <laughs> it's almost like God knows people. Yeah, I know I was guilty, but... That's such a long time ago. It doesn't really matter now. Why don't we just let it go? Let's let bygones be bygones. Yeah, but that's not what people are like. No, they feel convicted about it, but they know if they give it a few days, they won't feel so convicted anymore. 
But in this particular matter, if you sinned, you dealt with it right away. As soon as it was found out, as soon as you realized your guilt, you took care of things right away. You proved the genuineness of your repentance by immediately engaging in fixing the problem that you had created because of your sin. No waiting around, no mulling it over. You realized you were guilty and so you made restitution at 120% and you still had a reparation to make to God. This not only was against a person, so you made reparation to them by paying them 120% of what they owed, what, what you owed them. Now you had to go and make a sacrifice to God to clear the guilt. You had sworn falsely about the thing that you were doing. You invoked the name of God, and so you sinned because you took God's name in vain as a cover for your deceit. So, once you had made reparations to the person you stole from, now you went to the temple and confessed your sin to God and received forgiveness because of the sacrifice you made. The sacrificial ram was offered, and so atonement was made, and your sin was forgiven. So what does all this mean for us? Because we're not involved in tabernacle ritual. We don't go around worrying about... I I bet you if I said to you, okay, by show of hands, who has committed a breach of faith and sinned unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord? Everybody would be going... Yeah, I don't think I did that last week. Because we don't, we're not in a tabernacle system of worship. We're not under the Old Testament law in that sense. But what this is here for, for us, what this is here for, is to instruct us in the depth of the work of Jesus on the cross. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, a chapter that is no doubt familiar to you if you've walked with the Lord any time at all, In Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it says, as soon as I get there, I'm almost there, 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Christ on the cross is a guilt offering. He is making reparations on your behalf. He is repairing the damage in the relationship. What a tremendous price he pays on the cross. The Canadian government has paid out over $3 billion, that's B, billion dollars in reparation payments to survivors of the residential school system, and they're not finished paying yet. But Jesus paid infinitely more than that when he paid the price for your sin on the cross. He took care of your guilt. So surely by now in the book of Leviticus, as you've been studying, you're getting the sense you can't possibly meet all the demands and requirements of the law. You probably couldn't even remember all 613 laws that are in the Old Testament. And so it's almost certain that you're going to inadvertently or accidentally or unintentionally commit a sin, but it's still sin and you still have guilt because of it. So what do you do? You run to Jesus. He comes from heaven and fulfills all righteousness. He fully satisfies the Father's just anger over sin. He has no guilt. He's innocent. But he dies in the place of guilty ones. He makes a guilt offering, paying the reparation that you couldn't possibly pay. He is the means by which your relationship to God is repaired. That's the point of the offering in the Old Testament. You know, the whole world is guilty before God. We read it in in this morning's worship, in this morning's music session in Romans chapter 3. Let me hurry back there. 
In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, it says, As for one man, one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the... I'm sorry, I'm in 520. Ah, I knew as soon as I started reading it, it wasn't right. Now we know that whatsoever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable before God. So the law is there and it condemns everyone. The whole world is guilty. So the whole world needs Jesus. That's why we're in South Africa. Because South Africans need to know you're guilty. But you can be forgiven through Jesus. You say, yeah, that's good. You go and tell them that. You tell those Africans. You make sure they know. But islanders need to know it too. You're guilty. But a payment has been made for your guilt. And unless you repent and believe, you will all perish. So flee to the lamb who was slain. He was slain for your sins, for your transgressions. And if you will come to him and will believe in what he has done, your guilt can be removed. We used to sing that old hymn. My guilt is all pardoned. My sin is all gone. <laughs> and it is because of Christ and what he did. Praise his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a reminder from what is for most of us, I'm sure, an obscure text of the Bible. Thank you for reminding us about the freedom that we have in Christ and the way his sacrifice in our place pays the price our sin deserved. Our relationship is repaired now because of the sacrifice he made. So let us run to him and receive grace from him. Yes, it's true, the law increased the offense, but where sin abounded, Paul tells us, grace superabounded. There was always more grace. So God, thank you for that. Thank you for meeting us in our sinfulness with your grace. Now as we're moving into our communion time and then, Father, as we're dismissed to go to our homes, would you strengthen us in the inner man just with the knowledge that our guilt is forgiven because of Christ. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.